Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me is Lucas Wagner, the CFO of Pipe. On a mission to tackle the challenges and opportunities founders face when deciding how to finance their companies, Pipe has raised over $300 million since its foundation in 2019. Now valued at a staggering over $2 billion, today we're going to discuss how Pipe have gone from startup to fintech unicorn in just three years. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us today. Been really looking forward to this conversation. To kick things off, if you could start by giving us a brief overview of the story behind Pipe and, and your journey up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Peter. Really, Pipe was was the brainchild of Harry, Josh, and Zane, our, our three co-founders, who had been, you know, multiple-time entrepreneurs, early employees at other unicorns, and had found the fascinating fact that a lot of businesses, even as they scale, are making one very, very crucial mistake, which is discounting the annual pricing to their very best customers, their biggest believers, the folks that are willing to sign up for a year for a multi-year contract for the benefit of upfront cash flow. So what we were we set out with was the plan of designing a brand new financial product, bringing a new, if you will, asset class to life that allows recurring revenue companies that already have this sticky asset, this recurring revenue from their customers, from their subscription customers, recurring revenue customers, you know, where it's mon- monthly renewing to trade these assets for that desired upfront cash flow without the dilution that comes from an equity fundraise or the, you know, restrictive covenants that come from traditional bank issued debt products. So how we went about it is really start on that end of the equation, which is how do we design this, the sell side? So the recurring revenue companies, their experience building consumer grade products to really turn what is usually a tedious process. You know, financial products are usually not particularly user friendly. If you've had to get a mortgage or even sign up for a credit card yourself, it's not always the most pleasant process. I know some new banks are innovating, but that's how it's always been, especially in the business world. And on the other end, building a financial product with, you know, very attractive risk return profiles for institutional investors to be able to get exposure to this, you know, really successful businesses um, in the in the recurring revenue space. And I think, you know, the mode that we found most beneficial for all parties involved is that of a trading platform. Instead of having only one participant on one side, working with one participant on the other, really building a vibrant marketplace that allows, you know, to, for efficient price discovery, and also allows us to serve customers across a lot of industries. We started with SaaS, software as a service, right? Simply because all of them are super tech enabled, right? It's very easy to get data from these folks. And two, you know, very high margin businesses. Now, we've since expanded naturally into a lot of different verticals. We've done deals in the entertainment space. We've done deals in the sports space. Even some real world businesses like staffing agencies and property management have traded on the platform. And that was one of the things I was looking forward to asking you. In a business that has gone through that level of scaling and that uh, level of money raising in that short space of time, which is incredibly impressive, Lucas, how much has the, the long-term vision, the long-term aim of Pipe, has that evolved in the last – I mean, it's not a very long period of time, two, three years, but like, has that evolved during that time or, is it, or has that remained constant? 
Oh, for, for sure. I think, you know, when we first started out with, it was really about putting money, upfront cash into these founders, these operators' pockets. That was our key aim. I think everybody, everything else was up for discussion. Now, we really stood on the shoulders of giants, of all of the fintechs that have come before us, that have done biz- have had business models that were quite balance sheet intensive, that have led to, you know, difficult valuations, economic downturns have really hurt them. Capital availability has always been a little bit of a question. So we really, you know, used some of those learnings from others because we quite frankly didn't have those learnings ourselves yet. And we were, you know, our beta launch was right in the midst of the first few weeks of COVID. So that was very interesting timing. So we had to innovate quickly and really use other folks' learnings without being able to get them ourselves. Now, it turns out, I think that we've found a mode that really works for the business that we're, we're trying to build. Now, I think, you know, as any business that scales this quickly, you'll never know for sure. So I think it's, you know, always making sure you take right size bets that, you know, you won't get everything right, but you need to make sure that you get to keep playing. I think that that's especially in a fintech product, particularly important. Now, I was really looking forward to having you on today, not just because Pipe Story is a, a really fascinating one, but also because we haven't had a plethora of CFOs on the podcast up to this point, Lucas. Now, I'm sure we could have an entire half-hour conversation as to why that might be the case. But the reality is, and maybe rightly, maybe for wrongly, but the CFO's job, the head of finance's job, is often to make sure that whilst they understand that risks have got to take place in a business environment to things to be able to flourish – there's always got to be <laughs> there's always got to be that scaling and the risk taken with with the right level of risk in mind and you mentioned Harry and you mentioned your co-founders it seems like the appetite and the and the ambition for this business was massive so I'd love to hear from a CFO's perspective how on earth you went about trying to manage the risk element of growth in the right way yeah for sure so i think you know my mental model of a CFO especially in you know early stage and in growth companies is really around being a playmaker, not a referee. I think if you have to be the referee, you already did something wrong or the business is doing something wrong, you're always going to come in at the end. You're going to have to shut stuff down. It's not going to lead to the right culture of innovating. You need to have a seat at the table. You're not naturally going to get that, right? It has to be up to you know the founding team, the CEO, to give you that seat at the table, to make that hire early. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. But then also you need to be willing to take certain types of risk, right? Like I think there is a reason why someone with maybe my background really focused on startups, really not, you know, years worth of experience in large corporate has maybe a little bit of a of a of a better, you know, point of view on some of these issues because it's it it won't work. If you kill the risk taking, you're gonna kill the innovation alongside. But as I mentioned before, I think it's worthwhile, you know, having the risk evaluation no matter how far along in the journey you are. Now, in terms of the, you know, when should you hire a CFO, right? And I think like that's probably one of the burning questions that a lot of folks always have. You now, Harry had a, had a thought piece in, in one of the tech publications a few few weeks back. And obviously, you know, felt really good to hear it from, from him as well. Is really, you know, dependent on the business, but I think the bias should be to hire as, as soon as feasible, as soon as there's a little bit of money, as soon as there's maybe even the slightest of, you know, a, a hunch that, you know, product market fit might be something you're you're heading towards. Because in the end, right, what are finance leaders for? A, make sure you don't run out of money if you have some. And B, making sure the business model pencils so you actually are going to make some money at some point. Now, obviously, there has been, you know, a massive trend towards, you know, spending to, you know, then at, with economies of scale become profitable 
in a, in a more distant future. I actually think some of that trend is shifting a little bit. Um, but I think in particular for businesses like Pipe and, and other fintechs or fintech adjacent businesses, I think having that financial acumen there from day one is absolutely crucial. I think it's, you know, however helpful for business of any scale, of any stage, of any industry vertical. I think in my particular situation, what has been incredibly helpful for me, and I think, you know, a lot of finance leaders don't necessarily get that benefit, is for our first 20 or 30 customers, Harry and myself were on all of those customer calls. I got to witness the selling to the first customers, got to figure out how we can structure a financial contract that works for a customer, but then also pencils for us, and was able to then take and distill all of this information into then what were our operating plans, what was our goal setting, right? Which then helped us actually, you know, attract quite a bit of capital over the last couple of years and allowed us, you know, to become become a unicorn uh, last last summer. I was interested to ask actually, Lucas, because like, looking into your bio, you're based in Germany a lot of the time, as I understand it, you're German nationality originally, but yet studied in the US. I was interested to know if you feel like that balance in your background has been a, a great advantage to you, if kind of if understanding the European psyche and the American psyche has been uh, you know, crucial to your path so far? I mean, I, you know, I think other people in the end have to make that evaluation. But I think, you know, for me, it's always been interesting because I can understand the very, you know, risk positive side that is, you know, the West, especially the West Coast of the US. And then, you know, the very conservative kind of, you know, classical view of finance that is, you know, being taught at, you know, business schools in, in, in Frankfurt or London, right? So I think, you know, having that balance has absolutely helped. Now, I think in the end, you need to sway more towards the Silicon Valley side of things as you get started. And then as you mature, you naturally need to move over a little bit, right? You can accomplish that by virtue of going through that evolution yourself. I think where I have really helped myself, and I think, you know, that's one of the benefits of obviously having some capital to to increase, you know, the, the, the team is really, you know, hiring super talented people that have much more classical finance training than I have ever enjoyed, right? A lot of our folks on cap markets, on risk, have done credit at major investment banks, adventure debt lenders, have run cap markets teams at other fintech companies. Obviously, you know, as I said before, standing on the shoulders of giants, I think that's invaluable to really, you know, go through a growth phase like we have over the last 24 months. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at some of the things that Piper are achieving now, when you named on the Forbes 2022 fintech top 50, named as one of America bankers, best place to work in fintech as well. Um, it, it looks like things are absolutely going in the right trajectory. The thing that I've known from the, our own growth in the last kind of 10 odd years is that it's never just a straight line. There are there are some bumps in the road. It's a bit of a roller coaster journey. I'll be really fascinated, even in a short period of time since 2019. What have, what have been the biggest challenges, you know, during that journey so far? Well, I think I think one big you know challenge and one thing that you know, quite frankly, we were just lucky with the backgrounds that we had on the team was to not get greedy once we had the money in the bank, right? There has obviously, you know, historically been a bias in, in Silicon Valley, especially over the last two decades, you know, to spend massively on scaling the team, spent massively on scaling growth and marketing operations. And, you know, that means you basically need to then also scale, 
you know, top line and at some point hopefully profit in a, in a similar way. Otherwise, future fundraising will become quite difficult. Now, obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, but with, you know, the current macro conditions in, in the back of our minds, uh, I think it's, it's very, you know, fair to say that we made the right decision by virtue of, you know, scaling the team, but very responsibly so, right? We're, we're a $2 billion business with 110 people on staff. Um, which is, you know, I think quite an anomaly. I think, you know, we, we did similar things on marketing, right? Yaz, our CMO, is doing an absolutely fantastic job focusing on content, right? Like one of the reasons why we're talking right now, right? And making sure we get to tell our story, we get to, you know, educate founders about what we do. And, and same thing, by the way, with capital markets, but without needing to, you know, plaster all social media with very expensive advice, right? And really being targeted and thoughtful around the way that we spend money, spend money like we don't have the amount that, that we do have. I want to get on to the, the all important conversation of, of raising capital because it's something that a lot of our listeners are either been part of or in the process of or thinking about in the future. So we'll get on to that in a second. But one of the things that I do know about a, a business, as you say, 110 people for the numbers you're seeing is absolutely, there must be a great buzz about the place. There must be a great excitement in the air for anyone that's adrenaline mind or anyone that loves being part of a startup environment. There's definitely some that love the startup mode compared to a mid or larger size corporation. How do you make sure that you guys and people at the top table are stepping back and stopping enough? to give the all-important perspective because otherwise inevitably it could get a bit, a bit like a runaway train, right? Where the wrong decisions are being made because everyone just go all the time. Yeah, look, I think, you know, one of the key things that has helped us is one, obviously, you know, founders and then team leads need to lead by example. That means, you know, displaying healthy habits around, you know, the amount of hours that you're available. Now, is it more than a classic nine to five? Absolutely. I don't think, you know, I wouldn't claim anything else. But it's still, you know, making sure that most weekends, you know, while you might, you know, prepare for the next week ahead or something like that, you're not on, you know, Slack or Zoom or whatever 24-7 because turns out, you know, more junior employees early in their careers usually take an example with the leaders that they, they look up to. And I think it's important to kind of like live those habits. Same thing with taking time off, for example. I think the second thing, and that's just more from a how do we behave as an organization is making sure we set the right targets and we look at the right metrics to evaluate whether we're reaching those targets. So, you know, just, just to name, you know, one particular, you know, metric that's very important for Pipe and it always will be, but that is, you know, obviously the trading volume on, on our platform. Now, it will always continue to be a massive North Star metric, but I think, you know, one thing that we have discovered as a executive team is there's plenty of, other things that are, you know, quite frankly, just as important and targeting only this one metric will lead to the organization doing very unhealthy things that while they might lead to short-term satisfaction, they won't actually like build healthy habits as an organization while pursuing this, this, you know, one metric, right? It's the same way that if, you know, Tesla only focused on the numbers of cars sold, but they didn't care about the unit economics. They didn't care about the delivery times of actually getting those cars to customers or the uh, you know number of miles that a car can drive on a single charge. The business would fall apart, at least after you know delivering a few million cars in year one. It sounds like it has been, a yes, a successful journey. And it sounds like having some entrepreneurial founders that have been on that journey before certainly would have been highly useful. But 
raising capital, I'm sure already with what you've done, you could probably write a decent book on it, Lucas. But what have been the biggest standout takeaways and learns from that process over the last three years? Well, I think I think in the end, right, like raising capital really in the end is about telling a story, having momentum and doing it from a position of strength. Now, rarely when you start out, you will have all three of those components, right? Because, you know, likely your company doesn't have that much momentum yet. Your position of strength is probably questionable. But that's really as you go through those, you know, later rounds of fundraising, I think, you know, one of the mantras that we internally kind of kind of live by. So really what, what that means is you need to tell a compelling story about how your company is going to build the future. It doesn't have to be the future of everyone. It could be a future of a subset of people, a specific industry, a specific geography. But you need to be able to paint a picture with words. And then as you mature as a company, paint a picture with numbers. Now, in terms of momentum, I think if you start having exploratory conversations, you test the waters here, you test the waters there... You know, if there isn't real drive internally, it'll be very hard to develop that drive externally to actually get a deal done. Now, there have been, you know, crazy frenzies in the last couple of years where I'm sure, you know, something like that could have still gotten done with experienced founders, with obviously maybe hot topics um, like, you know, the, the Web3 space just, you know, 18 months ago. But Ideally, you have a very clear timeline, you set clear expectations with all involved parties, and you really build some momentum to actually get the deal done the way that you desire the the deal to get done. And then last but not least, you know, position of strength, you usually should raise when you don't need the money. If you need the money, you're a little bit a victim of the fact that either your business is so stellar that there is still going to be some competitive forces around it, right, and people are going to bid against each other. Or you're really at the mercy of the, the folks that are there to give you money, right? There's plenty of founders that, you know, waited just a tad too long. And then instead of giving up, you know, 10, 15% of their business ended up, you know, signing away two to three times that. And I think that that's something where, you know, quite frankly, me as a CFO looking at, you know, the market last year, obviously everything was going amazingly well. I didn't want to raise as much as we did. Because I could not come up possibly with an operating plan that had us spending that amount of capital. Now, fortunately, our founders uh, were had a lot more foresight than I did uh, and, and, and really thought, you know, with the right partner, let's rather have a little bit more ammo than a little bit too little, which obviously now having, you know, years worth of runway, you know, the macro environment obviously impacts us indirectly through our customers and obviously, you know, economic markets in general, reference rates, all of that good stuff. But us as a business, we can keep building, we can keep, uh, you know, marching towards our, you know, future as pipe without having to think about when we need to go fundraise next. That obviously now makes my job a whole lot easier than it would have otherwise been. Um, You've started to touch upon it there, but one thing I was really looking forward to asking you about is the dynamic between a CFO and a CEO in fundraise especially when a CEO is a founder. The reality is you're coming at things from two very different angles. I'd be fascinated to hear what you see that crucial difference, what you see those crucial differences being between a CEO and a CFO when you're in, the, in, in those meetings. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, right, it, it, it does depend in a large extent, to a large extent on whom the C, who the CEO is, what they're particularly good at, where their talents lie. I think I've, you know, with, with Josh and Harry now and then, then a gentleman named Scott Painter and at FAIR, 
who had taken a few companies public before that. I've always been blessed to be working with amazing storytellers, amazing salespeople that can really own that part, right? The vision building, the world building part of fundraising. But really, in the end, my role as, you know, CFO now, you know, back at FAIR, you know, director of finance or the like, I was really just there to provide the numbers to, you know, underlay that particular story, whether that is showing the momentum, showing the traction by virtue of looking at KPIs, looking at unit economics, or painting what could be based on our growth trajectory, based on, you know, geo expansion, based on new products that, you know, were just shown as, as, as mock-ups in, in, in the prior slides. I think ideally what you are as a CFO is really, you know, the right-hand man for those metrics, but you really try to plug in where the CEO isn't quite as good. And I think as long as you can build that relationship and that trust level, that's, I think, the ideal outcome. And I've always been fortunate enough that even from, you know, very early parts of my career, I was given a seat at the table because I knew the numbers like the back of my hand and gave the other folks the feeling that they didn't have to know the numbers quite as well. And I think if you can build that symbiosis, that's probably the ideal outcome for fundraising. The balance in the room, just making sure that top team is um, is, is covers all bases. Right. Let me let me actually you know jump in on that just for one second. I know I touched on it just a second ago, but I think what's really important, and I think that that's something that people underestimate a little bit, is you don't just have to have founders or C-suite executives in the room. If you're a business that's you know really really focused on a specific piece of technology, if you have a business that's extremely focused on risk management, right? It, whatever it is that makes your business special, bring the person that built the thing that makes your business special. And it doesn't matter whether that person is particularly polished, whether that person is, you know, particularly experienced in, in pitching, but usually the story works better when you can actually show the expertise that, uh, of, of what you're building and it's perfect. It's also a perfect opportunity to help those people that are the key cogs in the machine that is your business to get some exposure. Everybody loves to be part of the fundraising journey. There's not a single employee I've met that is like, I don't want to be a part of that. It's a rush, right? Everybody really enjoys it. So, so you should give people opportunities. I love that, Lucas. I haven't heard that particular angle before. So yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people uh, nodding when you when you run through that one and a really interesting take on it. Thank you for sharing. We're talking as we're about to go into October in 2022. The UK government are making some pretty interesting roads right now. There's a lot of commentary in relation to the global economy predictions. And one of the things, as you alluded to before, is that when the markets and the global economy is in a strong position, everything seems that little bit easier. Uh, when things apparently look like they're going to be going a slightly different uh, uh, journey in, in, in coming years or coming months and years, potentially, people will, will look at things through a bit of a more detailed microscope, perhaps. I'd be interested to know, with Pipe having gone starting 2019 to where you are now, how does the future world economy affect the strategies and your planning for your next uh, for your next couple of years? Well, I think in the end, right, that there's very few truly recession-proof, you know, macro-proof business models out there. Um, look, in the end, we need entrepreneurs to feel like they can go out there and build the future, right? And we can be part of that journey with them. If that ceases to happen, which I don't believe, then that would obviously be a problem, right? If we on one side of the marketplace don't have don't have folks that, you know, want to 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 have more capital to to go build their dreams. That would be tough, right? Think on the other hand of the equation, right? 
there's always a price at which people are willing to go buy risk in the markets. Now, that price will just change. Now, the good thing is the rising tides lift, lift all boats, right? So while, you know, trading on our platform might get more expensive if, you know, the Fed funds rate increases by 3% over just a few months, the same thing will hold true for your floating rate bank loan. The same thing is true for mortgages out there. And as you can see, at least it's available. You know, VCs really, you know, to a large extent, and, you know, we're, we're, we're friendly with a lot of them and we always see ourselves as partners, right? Especially with early stage VCs that, you know, seed the businesses that then later on graduate and, and utilize the pie platform. You know, a lot of them really set out for, for a couple of months and, you know, try to see where, where the road is headed. Now I hear, you know, early stages is back live, but I think, you know, some of the very large, you know, 50, 100, 150 million dollar growth rounds that we've seen in, in years recent, they might be done for, you know, another year or so. And, you know, the tech IPO market is completely dried up. So I think, you know, there is obviously always a room for capital to be provided. And I think, you know, in the end, I always like to think of these types of situations as tailwind for innovative, you know, financing models. But I think the verdict is still out, right? We're, we're only in the, you know, second or third inning of, of, of this, this downturn. Nice. I'm looking forward to following the next chapters in Pipe's journey immensely off to the back of this, Lucas. I think you're someone that has a great energy about them and it, it sounds like an incredibly uh, incredibly enjoyable ride so far, so to speak, and it'd be great to see what can be, can be done in the future. What do you now see? I'm, I'm a big believer that the businesses go through chapters. What might be right for the first year is a chapter and then you go through the funding, might be another chapter. Now it's execution time. What, what are the biggest challenges facing Pipe now and what are the things that you're most excited about with those challenges? Well, I think really, right, we've we've gone through, you know, growth that was beyond our dreams when we set out. I think, you know, us expecting to be here, you know, in year three, when it was just, you know, five of us sitting together in, you know, a house in Phoenix in, in late 2019, hacking on like the very first version of the product. You know, we could have never thought that we would be here. Um, so there was no plan that that reached that far. Right now, it's really, you know, in a lot of ways for a lot of us, you know, learning, learning on the job in, in terms of, you know, what parts of us, what parts of our existing team are scalable and where do you need, you know, to infuse incremental talent to really kind of lead certain parts of the organization, people that have been there, done that. You need to scale certain administrative bits that, quite frankly, you know, I'm a big you know, accounting is a good example. We're going, you know, through that right now where we really, you know, start professionalizing that more and more. We now, you know, need to. Now, I will always defend our decision to not have done that earlier. I think, you know, people setting up a 15-person accounting department before they have product market fit are just wasting money. I would rather go, you know, and, and have the first auditor to be a little bit tough and really focus, you know, the early stages of the business on building the business, not the accounting. But those are the types of things that now, you know, as we keep going in our growth journey with, you know, a future liquidity scenario, probably being inside of, you know, five to seven years, you know, you need to start, you know, buttoning up the business a little bit. I think, you know, Pipe is a great product. I want to be a great company as well. And I think, you know, there's obviously certain parts of the business that that, that we need to mature all together. Absolutely. We, 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 we ourselves saw a definite difference when we went over that 150-person trajectory 
the difference of what we thought we would need operationally compared to what we did need. <laughs> wow. We were definitely caught short a little bit. So I think the reality right. is, is you say, stepping back, looking at what the next three to six to 12 looks like and doing your suitable planning. I, I, I definitely took some pretty big learns from that. And it sounds like you guys have got that kind of balance to get right because it is not an exact science. Uh, uh, I'm with you. I, I believed in keeping lean to begin with. And, the, and, and as you get more and more profitable, then you, you can add these elements to the department, but when to do these things is not an exact science, is it? So um I think, um, you know, being being scrappy is a virtue early on, but it ceases to be that at some point, right? And I think like the same people that were that scrappy and let the team through those phases need to really change their mental calculus a little bit and say, hey, look, you know, you don't want to be, you know, wasteful, but there is some resources now. You know, if you do need that incremental engineer, you can go hire another engineer. It's not a problem. You know, like, you know, you don't have to grind all weekend, right? <laughs> I think that's... That's important to 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 you know get into people's heads. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, but really interested to hear, Lucas, as you mentioned, the um, you are far from the most experienced CFO in the room amongst kind of fintechs and finance related space. Um, it's been an incredible journey that you've been on for, and, and and the CFO role that you're in now is the first CFO role. I'd be fascinated to hear what have been the most effective personal methodologies that you, that you've used to grow and develop as a leader during this time. Well, I think, you know, I, I try to be, and this is, you know, sort of, such a platitude, but I, I, I truly do believe in that. I try to ideally never be the smartest person in the room. Now, obviously, you know, the team at Pipe makes that quite simple for me. We have, you know, brilliant engineers. We have, you know, a lot of, you know, cap markets and risk leaders coming from, you know, industry leading, leading businesses, banks, other fintechs and the like. But really, you know, both within Pipe and external to it, surrounding myself with people where at least in one vector of what they do, they're light years ahead of me, right? And I think, you know, at this point, I think, you know, I'm very pleased to be able to say that because I think that means at least on the vector of hiring, I did a fantastic job, is I think in every single part of the finance team, there is someone that is better than me at that particular thing. And I think like that in the end, you know, going back to the analogy I used earlier of the playmaker, I think, you know, the CFO should really be a really good finance generalist, have a really good understanding of the underlying business, its mechanics, the metrics that matter. But if the you know CFO is still the best risk person, is still the best accounting person, is still the best FP&A person after a couple of years, you've probably not really done your job right on, 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 on getting the, the, the right people. Now, I think beyond, you know, just being around people, I think it's really reading. I think, you know, the good thing is to some extent at this point, everyone that has built anything of value in Silicon Valley has decided to write a book about it. So that may, makes for a lot of, you know, interesting reading material around how to build a business, how to scale a business, how to not scale a business, how businesses blow up, right? So there's a lot of information out there. And I, I you know, love to read, love to, you know, listen to audiobooks, you know, podcasts, um, so really just trying to, to learn from the best and, and suck up that information. And I think last but not least, given I am, you know, still in the, in the early stages of, of, of my career as a CFO, I think it's being, you know, very self-aware and being willing to, you know, ask for help whenever you don't know the answer to something, right? I think, you know, we're building something completely novel. Every once in a while, we do something that's super out there and test something that nobody's ever done before. But there is usually people that have tried something similar and being willing to pick up the phone and say, hey, look, we're in this situation. 
we think we're on to something, but there is X, Y, and Z problem. And you may have solved that before. You know, could you walk me through that and being willing to, you know, admit that you don't know or admit that you were wrong with how you started, right? I think that's what also builds then the confidence in you as a leader, right? I think, you know, taking it on the chest and saying, I don't know, or I'm wrong is probably a really good tool to actually learn more about what's going on in the world. It's been the best thing about this podcast for almost the last couple of years, Lucas, is the fact that it's been a load of people very willing to come on and say, God, we made a big mistake there and I've had that learn and that was pretty painful. And I think as long as there's a, right. a nice openness, a nice authenticity in relation to that and people aren't trying to be the almighty where they never make a mistake and they're just holier than now, I think that's how a, 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 group, a community of leaders can keep learning with each other, right? Final couple of quick fires from me, Lucas. It's been a fascinating conversation as I knew it would be. Um, is, is there a best book? podcast or movie that you'd recommend that you take into long-lasting learns from yeah and this is this is not it's a fairly recent one that i read i think maybe maybe a couple of years back it's called factfulness i think it's it's hans rosling is the author i think he's a swear scandinavian for sure um and he basically wrote this book about you know why the world is actually much better than we all think, right? We're bombarded with news around how, you know, poverty is really getting worse, you know, refugee crises, wars happening, uh, dictators left and right. Now, all of those things might be true, but they're still much better than they were 50 or 100 years ago, right? And there is, you know, certain stories around where, you know, Zambia today is where Sweden was 80 years ago, right? And Egypt is where Sweden was 50 years ago, right? And there's, we obviously need to do a lot more to make sure there is more parity across the world. But in the end, you know, uh, extreme poverty has been cut in half and all of those things that, you know, really make me bullish about the future of the world. And I think that's, you know, a book where I frequently, you know, cite and, and use those arguments against folks that are particularly worried about, right, like where we're headed, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not quite a futurist. I don't think I'm technically en technical enough for that, but I am really positive about where we're heading. I love supporting entrepreneurs that are building the future and everyone that's kind of stuck with, well, all things are always getting worse. I always try to refer them to that book and say, hey, look, like, factually, they're not. No, they're not perfect. Don't get me wrong. You know, there is a lot of things going wrong. But you should read that, right? Like most people are much better off than they were 50 or 100 years ago. And, and I think as we, you know, it's not, you, you mentioned before, it's not a straight line. Some things get worse for a brief period, but overall the trend is upwards. And I think that's, that's, that's what we need to take away from that. Lucas, I like it. As a positive energy-based person myself, I'm a, that's not a book I know. I will undoubtedly be getting it, um, maybe for my older ball, my bike, or maybe for a, for, for a nice holiday read at some point. But that sounds awesome. Sure. Thank you for recommend, uh, recommending that one. Um, and if there was one learn you'd want our listeners to take away from your journey so far, Lucas, if, if a learn that would have made that journey that little bit easier or a little bit faster, what, what would that one learn be as a leader? Well, I think in the end, you should really just work on a problem that you care about solving and with people that you enjoy solving it with. Because I think, you know, to your earlier point, it's always going to go, you know, up and then down and it's not going to be straightforward and you will have arguments uh, with external parties, with internal parties. You're going to spend an awful lot of time on your work. Most people are. And you should really care about what you're looking at, right? I think, you know, I happen to really enjoy trying uh, financial problem solving. 
which in the end, you know, building a brand new financial product allows me that. And working with people, like I said, that are building the future, right? So I think, you know, Pipe was a really good fit for me. Now, you know, my previous experience, and I'm happy to, I would always do it the same way. I got a seat at the table, super thankful for all of the people at FAIR. But in the end, I couldn't quite identify with the product, which was cars. I'm not a massive car guy, quite as much as I can with the product that we're building at Pipe. So I, I very eagerly suck up every inf- piece of information I can, you know, learn about the space that we're in, whereas that was maybe not quite the case at my previous job. So I think, you know, people that are fortunate enough to be in a position where they can kind of, you know, pick and choose what their, their own destiny is, which I think most people actually are, they should opt for not the thing that gives them the, the you know, maybe the best entry level salary or something like that, but actually trying to solve problems that they care about solving with good people. And then it tends to happen that I think, you know, some of the other bits tend to follow or they don't have to, right? There's plenty of people. Uh, my better half is a teacher and, you know, she absolutely loves it, loves spending time with the kids, has, you know, massively positive experiences there. And I think that's fine as well. Um, so I think, you know, not business or startups is not for everyone. That's fine. Even if it's, you know, the perfect thing for me. Um, so yeah, just find something you care about with, with good people. And, and I think everything else will, will work out. I agree totally. Um, life is too short to spend your time doing something that you fundamentally don't like, or you have to force yourself out of bed for. I say to our executive team, every time that we meet together, I'm like, we're going to speak a lot about a, a lot of serious things today. And there might be some forward browse. There might be some people worrying about this. Like, can we just smile and enjoy it at the same time? Because ultimately, there's a lot of people right. that are we get to do what we like every day, and we should be thankful for that. So, um, Lucas, I think that's a beautiful, along with your book recommendation, a beautiful place to wrap things up. So thank you so much for sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today. And I know that there'll be lots that would have resonated with the listeners like me. They'll be taking away some valuable ideas as well. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Thank you again, Lucas. 